Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 13 of Education Suspended. I am Jessica Pfeiffer, one of the co-hosts. Excited to have you here. I hope you all had a great 4th of July. Um, ours was really low key, which is exactly what the doctor ordered. We just needed that. We connect with Dr. Stephanie McCall and Caitlin Long today, who are the founders of Rescripted, which is a feminist education consulting practice. To be honest, I was preparing for this intro and was having a really hard time of deciding how do I even uh, introduce this discussion? Because it was so in-depth. Um, I learned so much. And to be honest, I have still so much more to learn. But the conversation is great. We talk about you know, role, the role of implicit bias, um, but more in particular, the role of implicit policies. What is the impact of us not thinking critically through the policies that are in our educational systems, um, which was a phenomenal conversation. We also, you know, Dr. McCall and Caitlin do a really good job of kind of talking about and trying to fill that theory to practice gap. What's that about? How do we do a better job of actually filling that space, um, which is a conversation that needs to continue um, for sure. So again, welcome to Education Suspended. Sit back and enjoy episode 13 with Dr. Stephanie McCall and Caitlin Long. All right, we're, we're, we're up and rolling. So Dr. McCall and Caitlin, thank you so much for being here today. We are excited to pick your brains. Um, before we go, we'd love for you just to introduce yourselves, tell us how you got here, and we always have our guests, if you want, share a little bit about your own educational experience as it influenced you as well. So whoever wants to go first, it's totally up to you too. We'll let you decide. Caitlin, go for it. <laughs> well played, well played. I, I knew that was gonna happen. <laughs> um, awesome, so I'm Caitlin, I go by she, her, and my own education experience. I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is that it's seems to be really no accident that I landed in this field of um, feminist education and sort of non-formal education as a community edu educator. That's been my experience as a teacher, an educator through a multiplicity of all girls and gender specific spaces. Um, my background is in cultural anthropology for undergrad and then shifted into my master's of education and curriculum and teaching, which was actually launched from the experiences I had within gender specific settings. So was most often teaching healthy sexuality and sexual health to specifically um, girl identifying people. And that launched me to want to think differently, rethink, um, think more critically about girls education. And so that's where I met Stephanie as a professor at Teachers College. And we shared similar investments in rethinking um, curriculums, for curricula for girls and um, girlhood. So I feel like the trajectory that's more like professionally, personally, I think coming out of trauma, coming out of my own experiences, I think it makes a lot of sense when I think of like mapping where I am today and what I'm passionate about and what I want to do with my life and my time and my knowledge and my energy. Um, 
So that's what I would share. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. All right. So Dr. McCall, you're up. So thank you for inviting us. Um, Absolutely. It's always, it's always really great to be asked about um, your work as a scholar, I think, and just whatever anyone does, it's great to hear other people's stories. So thank you for asking about our story. Um, I, um, um, I don't even know where to start. I'm a adjunct professor at Teachers College um, at Columbia. Um, I did my doctorate there and uh, spent a long, a long time there doing that. Um, and then I left for a little while to teach at um, a small college, a small university in Pennsylvania. So I've since returned back to Teachers College adjuncting, um, but primarily my time has been spent um, with Caitlin building this company and um, still doing some writings. I've got some publications and still have some research on the horizon. But I think that I'm right now with Caitlin, very interested in um, figuring out how my work can matter for schools and teachers and classrooms. I've started uh, doing that more. I mean, definitely as a professor, I think being in, in education and teaching gender and education or teaching kind of social foundations, um, I feel like I have a small reach into schools and classrooms, uh, but it wasn't until I started working with um, a person who founded an all girls public school ne uh, new network in Kansas City. I started working with him very explicitly from the beginning, from writing the charter until you know three years now. So that really got me excited about the whatever is in my articles or whatever's in my courses or in my books to really to kind of get it off the page. And Caitlin does that. She does that in her everyday life, and I don't have the opportunities much to do that. So this just seemed like a great coming together um, to, to have that scholarship matter in, in everyday practices. I was originally an English major um, and I wanted always to be a teacher. So I taught middle school for about seven years. I taught high school for five years. I've been a curriculum coach. I was an academic dean of an all girls school. I've been a curriculum consultant. I love seventh graders. I seventh graders are pretty much like my favorite human beings in the world. I wish they could like go out, you know, like, you know, cause I just, I would love to like hang out with seventh graders pretty much all the time. Yeah. Um, I always wanted to be a teacher though, but I would say that most of my work around gender and sexuality in education specifically is driven by my convictions and commitments to equity. I did Teach for America. I spent three years in Compton um, teaching middle school. And even before, just to even get to that point, I've always been convicted by the fact that different kids have different access. Um, I was one of those kids that was, um, you know, left out of classes or left out of higher level classes or, um, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't get to, I didn't get private schools. I just, I didn't have, I was just, I noticed most of my life, I didn't have the same access and not that the same is what everyone needs, but um, right. it made me ask a lot of questions about who, who has access and who gets what and what that means. So, so that actually came up quite a bit when I was reviewing 
um, some of the articles that you have written, you know, I have been very attuned and probably unfortunately uh, more lately than than not because i'm naive of just the the inequity and knowledge from the racial perspective but i think you know as a woman reading your articles and kind of having this eye-opening like oh what are the inequities from a gender perspective what does that look like and then i began to even question my own experience in schools of like well what the hell you know my best friend was was matt did we have did we have totally different experiences in school so I don't know, can you speak to that a little bit about this, yeah, this equity piece from a gender perspective? Well, sure. I mean, I think there are, you know, that's a hard question because it cuts across so many experiences, right? Like it, so first I would say that question intersects like a, a, an understanding of school experience from a gender lens is going to intersect with racial experiences and social and social class, which it was a huge part of my life is just yeah. um, uh, down, you know, growing up in downwardly mobile family and um, uh, multiple divorces and navigating the different social classes between that. So social yeah. class, I think is really Absolutely. complicated as well. Um, uh, but so then from a gender and sexuality perspective, Caitlin, and I also get very concerned about ability um, so, right, so I would first sort of say, Jessica, that from that gender lens about experience, it's informed by all that, which complicates it, I think, yeah. you know, complicates it. Um, but I do think that um, people are experiencing school very differently because largely um, school is a very traditional organization. <laughs> it's a, yeah. it's, it's somewhat traditional, even in like a progressive philosophy, schools have some often a very narrow purpose. So if that per it, depending on what that purpose is driven by often depends on what, who has what experience, mm -hmm. right? So that I would even say outside of just a specific gender lens, but including a gender lens, you know, who's included, who's excluded, how are, how are, how are people positioned? How are girls positioned as objects or as agentic? Or um, my school girls were cheerleaders and objects of male affection. And um, that was pretty much what I grew up believing. That was, if I was smart, great. Um, that's just, that just, you know, I was athletic. Okay, that's good. But that still wasn't really what I think I grew up with thinking what girls was supposed to do. Um, so I think there's like that inequity as well around girlhood, but that cuts across cultures and social class, right? Also yeah. what, what girlhood is. So, yeah. you know, I think it's a, that's a, a complicated question, but I would say that the short answer is yes, you probably <laughs> did experience school yeah. differently, largely because it's other people's views of gender and then they're treating us that way, right? Mm -hmm. So, they're treating people differently. Teachers are treating their, the, it's the social interactions. I, yeah. I think that are largely unchecked, yeah. not just like who got to go to AP class or who got to play football. It's, it gets really complicated when you talk about, well, which student, which bodies are treated certain ways and talked to certain ways and are, right. So I think that makes it really complicated. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, you know, I want to spend some time clearly talking about Rescripted, which is your um, company, and it sounds amazing. But I think before we can even go into that, 
Um, I was wondering if you, you two could share, you know, from your perspective or from, from where you're coming from, a little bit about feminism and this word feminist. Like, what does that actually mean for you two? Because I feel like there's quite the spectrum for what people mm-hmm. take glean from that, right? Depending on where you come from. So maybe we could start with that of what does this, what does that mean for both of you? Yeah, I think um, you said Caitlin, right. I think Stephanie and I um, talk a lot about how in a really powerful way we've burdened ourselves in calling ourselves a feminist education consulting practice because um, there's like no mistake that it's called the F word. Like a lot of people, yeah. So we actually have like an upcoming blog that of course we've like are working on so much and it's really complicated and it's really nuanced. So it's taking a while and we're really, um, you know, passionate about what this means when we put this out there to represent um, our complicated nuanced understandings and intersectional understandings of feminism. But yeah, it's no accident, it's called the F word. So um, I know for me, like when I think of Rescripted and why we're claiming, you know, and burdening ourselves with a feminist education consulting practice is to be explicit around equity and is to be explicit around um, the the disruptiveness of feminism. Um, and that feminism is for everybody. So kind of opening and putting out there so that we can have like conversations like this about like, well, so what do you mean by feminism? So that we can generate that kind of collective knowledge and understanding of folks' understandings of feminism. Um, I know in clients that we work with, there's this interesting like assumption that we all have shared understandings of feminism. And I think we offer the opportunity to interrupt that and we offer the opportunity to, to disrupt that. And so particularly in all girl spaces who are like girl power and feminism and like the future's feminism. And then when we start complicating it by like race or by ability or by sexuality or by class, um, it invites a, a more interruptive conversation. So I think like we're pretty explicit with that and how we, um, you know, represent ourselves. So the way in which we get clients, I think is people are interested in rethinking. Um, and so that's important to not have, I think it would be hard to say I have like a, a solid definition because I think feminism is, um, is it's more um, interactive and relational than just saying, something so simple it's so complicated um but not to not answer that question if that makes sense but no i mean i mean it makes sense and i appreciate i think that you said that because i do feel like culturally it is a word that we actually try to put in a box right to some degree because it probably makes us feel safer like oh well and my wife and i were laughing before this this morning it's like you know like well it's more than just going to an Ani defranco concert not shaving your damn armpits i was like Thank you. Thank you for that as we move into this space. But it's interesting how like we we try to put something I think that is probably pretty big into a specific area. So yeah. Um, sorry, doctor. Go ahead. Oh yeah, I was just gonna say that's how it gets the possibilities of it, I think gets foreclosed. So that's also why I think we've burdened ourselves with it, is to um hold ourselves accountable as well, right? To those complexities. Um sure. 
So I'm sitting here as a 65-year-old, very uh, implicitly biased, once sexist man, Um, just full disclosure, just how I grew up and a lot to learn. And I am really interested in in, in Jessica's question, as you would approach someone like me um, with what it means to be a, a feminist and what it means to understand feminism, um, I, I would love to hear your take on, you know, how do you approach old white guys? <laughs> I don't know <laughs> a better way to put it, but um, I mean, I, I, honestly, I, I believe in your work, but I still want to hear your answer because mm-hmm. there's a, cause, just because I need to. So I'm going to zip it and listen. How, how would you approach that explanation to someone in my position? When I think of approaching people who have a hard time understanding equity and a discussion around like that, like personhood, like thinking about somebody's personhood and the value that people bring and all the differences that they have. And, and so I guess what I would say is I would start with the more historical, cultural sort of social understanding. So asking a lot of questions about like how you've come to understand your whiteness or your maleness and Mm -hmm. like where those messages come from. So, so often in conversations with particularly like hetero cis white men, um, unpacking sort of like their misunderstanding of their positionality and their identities is not by accident that like, our knowledge and education has affirmed those identities forever. So poking and asking questions that help bring an awareness of like, this isn't a personal attack on who you are. This is more of a reflection of um, how society has been constructed. And so, you know, talking about privilege and power and then connecting that to actually systems and structures for, to help people understand. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of my work, I mean, it's, I think it, it's like folded into Rescripted because it's who I am, but my work in working with um, other white folks around like building a positive white identity and understanding anti-racist work, not just performatively, like I think similar with gender, we ask, I ask a lot of the same questions. Like, how do you know that? How did you come to know this about mm-hmm. yourself? So we're able to like kind of poke at um, and invite people to understand themselves and their positions in the world differently than they did before. Um, so that's an approach I take, if that helps at all. Yeah, that helps. And that it makes great sense. I would just, I would add on, I think I would add on to Caitlin that, that I think what, what she's saying makes me think of maybe starting with like a situatedness, right? Like a, almost your questions were about feminism or, um, and what it is, and I think um, I almost would start with, well, what is, you know, how do you consider masculinity? How do you consider whiteness? Like I would probably, I mean, I know Caitlin said something like that, but like I would probably even just start with those questions um, just because power and privilege are so, are so what guide the social relations, both, you know, between like men and women um, and and also between everyone in between um, um, and beyond. Um, so I think that's probably where 
I would start. And it's where I spend a, like a lot of conversations with my family too. You know, like what, so, you know, what do, what do you, what do you think it is? And then start with how you have come to know, to, to know that because largely the way you've come to know it is through your own privilege. And then once that privilege, you know, gets, um, I think repeated. So it's almost like, it's like repetition is part of it. And the more repetition of those, of that privilege, it sort of, it, it sediments it, right? So it becomes really tight belief system for you. You come to then count on it. Sure. So it's this act of being, you know, taught this way, then the repetition of that way of being, and then concretizing it for yourself, and then just believing it and living it out, and then reproducing it for others. Mm-hmm. Our One of our favorite scholars that I was introduced to through Stephanie at Teachers College is um, Sara Ahmed, who talks about feminism as homework. And so I think to that, like, the what you're talking about, the sort of like, concretizing and solidifying and reproducing of those beliefs, I think it takes homework, whether it's anti-racist homework, it's anti, like discussing um, feminism. Like it, I think often I, when I find in these conversations is like with other white folks, particularly, or folks who are struggling to understand um, intersections of gender and sexuality, it's like, they want to just know and then be done when like oh sorry it's my computer um want to just know and be and then like be done with the work and that's where privilege shows up um but it's work and I think um that's another invitation that we have as rescripted is like this shit takes work and we want to work with people who want to do the work um because it's not sustainable if you don't want to get in this shit with us and like be in the arena like fighting and like thinking through things really complicated and it's not easy and it's not going to be palatable and it's not going to be like, Oh, yay. We did our feminist thing today. Or, oh yeah. We did our anti-racist shit. Like it's not easy. Um, and so I think that like re- interrupting that reproduction of whatever um, oppression it's, it's work. It's a lot of work. Um, a lot of internal work, a lot of external work um, yeah. for sure. And I think we've both worked with organizations and schools, both as consultants and as teachers, where people, I think, have a sense, especially, I guess, for me, not especially, but particularly from my experience, people want to do that thinking and they invite me into those conversations. But then they're like, what did we get ourselves into? <laughs> like, it's be careful what you ask for, because like, now why? everything's about like why are we asking all these questions what how did it get so complicated and i think for us in rescripted we had that opportunity to say let's be really explicit about how we're coming into these conversations um so it's not like hey don't call us if you don't if you don't um, understand but it is like we might not be the best fit if you aren't kind of ready to get into the the muck of it um, and that digging really deep that, that I think Caitlin's talking about. The other thing I wanted to say to Steve is there's a really great book by Michael Kimmel called Angry White Man. Angry White Men. Yeah. There we go. You should there take it. I love, I love Michael Kimmel's work. Yeah. 
I, uh, I would, uh, first of all, Steve, I just, I think it's really, um, I love your question. I think it's a vulnerable question. And I think that's the first thing I would honor in having conversations with folks is like, you know, it's, it's, it's a vulnerable thing. And I think shame can quickly take over and people opt out because they have the privilege to opt out and, um, people who don't are the ones who are asking those questions, I think. And so, um, another book I would invite you to check out that, um, I know for my, for my father, we've been doing a lot of this. I like, he should pay me hourly, but, um, for all the things that I do for my dad, but, um, I love him. I mean, he's also, listening. I love your dad. He's great. He's so great. Oh, he'll be yeah. way too much ego hearing this right now. Though I, though I love your mother more. Okay. Keep going. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's a book called, um, you can't teach what you don't know by Howard. Um, as well as, um, we're doing a book club, but just him and I having conversations from, so you want to talk about race, Ijeoma's book. Um, so again, like thinking about, like, I remember my, my dad and folks in my life would be like, gosh, but like, I don't have all this time to read. I'm like, that's your, also your privilege showing up again, like do the work, show up, do the work. So, um, yeah. Like that. Uh, okay. Let's jump back to rescripted. So, uh, Dr. McCall kind of what, what was the drive for you and Caitlin as you decided to kind of take this journey and, and create rescripted? I think the drive started many, many, many years ago. Maybe what, Caitlin, five years ago were you at yeah. college? So Caitlin took, um, started taking classes at teacher's college and I was her professor in a couple of those classes. Um, I finally had to just say, Caitlin, stop taking my classes because there's a lot of really, really much cooler people at this place. But we just, we sort of had a pretty quick, um, we fell in love pretty quickly, I would say. It was love at first sight. Um, So we found ourselves after class or between class or office hours or just in the hallway or in emails, really connecting and having a lot of um, similar goals and desires and frustrations. Um, I was sort of doing the theory of gender and sexuality in schools and in education mostly curriculum because that's my that's really sort of if you think of school as a really complicated institution curriculum is really where i devote my my analysis about Mm -hmm. gender and sexuality um both in curriculum design and curriculum articulation and curriculum analysis um so caitlin and i Caitlin was the person doing that work. So I had been a doctoral student for so long, reading, sitting in the library and writing, doing a dissertation. I did, I did my research though in schools, in two schools. I was in one school for one whole year and another school for another year. So I, 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 I had 10 years of, of life in school. So it wasn't that I wasn't familiar with it, but Caitlin was in a, a girl-specific education, a gender-specific. And so... We just had a lot in common um, and we had a lot of frustrations. And I think that's what a lot of this grew out of. It was some frustrations. Mm-hmm. And then we got to this point where we were both making some career changes and it just happened to be at the very exact same time. Um, so 
I think largely other than that, just the stars being aligned, we feel like we've always represented the theory practice gap that is so prevalent and um, in schools and just talked about in mainstream education discourses all the time. I'll, I'll never forget when Stephanie called me out of the blue, like we stayed in touch relatively well, but called me out of the blue to ask if I'd be interested in a project and helping write an RFP for um, a girl's a girl specific organization. And I was like deep in parent teacher conferences as a seventh grade teacher and like walked back into my conferences. Like, I think my life's going to change. I told you this recently. Like I was like, I like felt a shift. I was like, we're going to do this. We got to do this. And that first round we didn't get picked, but then I was in a fellowship this summer that helped me like basically paid me to re to think about a passion project. And, um, I was like, so Stephanie, we'd often on like Saturdays, just have beer mosas and like FaceTime each other and talk about things. And so it's been many, uh, beers and many uh, micheladas and like conversations. Um, I think people will think we're like always so serious, but we actually have a lot of play and a lot of fun. Um, so I feel pretty lucky that we actually just, we just took the leap and was like, let's do it. And people are wanting it. So that's also feels really great. I love it. Okay. I'm going to ask a really random question and I feel bad asking this because I feel like after you read some of your articles, you should know this, but in full transparency, you, you know, you're talking about this, like these all girls schools, these, these gender specific schools. I couldn't really decide if you all like them or not in what I was reading and researching of like, do you think it's a good thing to have this gender specific space in education or not? Or did you try to trick me on purpose? Just kidding. That was, I don't know, Caitlin, if you want to answer that one. And that's not, not that it's all about me, but anyway. I knew you were going to ask this. <laughs> Love it. I think I often, as a professional, like at an all girl school and in these spaces get asked this question. Um, and I think I would say that it's just not that binary. And I think it's nuanced and um, there's a deep love I have for girl specific spaces. Um, I grew up as an educator at Girls Inc. of Metro Denver. Like I grew up as a, in my own womanhood and in my own understanding of feminism in a space with those who all identified as girls. So I have like a deep love and appreciation for um, the kind of community, whether it was with staff or with students that comes from spaces like gals or spaces like Girls Inc. Um, or Girls mm -hmm. Leadership or the like plethora of girls led and girls organizations I've worked with. Mm -hmm. And I had a profound like questioning of the work and what the knowledge does. Um, so I think those can exist simultaneously and for me, I find rescripted to be like the space that's sitting like in allows that kind of contradictory like tension of a paradox to exist yeah. and complicate it. Um, so I think spaces that have really oversimplified understandings of gender are interesting and I want to be there to help interrupt them. So that's how I would answer that. Okay. And I realize I'm just asking probably loaded questions today that it's, <laughs> it's complicated, Pfeiffer. It's, I just, 
know, I just find myself reflecting on my own experience, right? Like that's just what I keep going back to because that's all I know. And, you know, Caitlin, we were talking a couple of weeks ago of like, as I was going through this and preparing, I just tried to like, okay, let's, what, what would I have been like if I went to an all girls school, right? Like I, you know, that's just where I go. So I think that came up. Um, go ahead, Steve. Well, that brings up, I'm going to go back to it. I don't know if you guys want to answer this or not, but the blue brains and pink brains idea that has driven a little bit of that conversation lately about, um, you know, single sex schools or whatever. I would still, that's another question. And when I got done reading, I think I maybe guessed where you were leaning, but um, the whole neuroscience around blue brains for boys and pink brains for girls, where, where have you landed there? And why, why is that an important conversation? So I, I think, Steve, that's a, it's a good question. And I think it's very, it's related to Jessica's question around. Yeah, so it sure is. With, yeah. Right? So it's like around whether it's, you know, all girls schools or single sex schools or gender specific learning. Um, and so, I'll try, I can maybe even answer them both together. I, I think the, the short and unsatisfactory answer to most people is that's not what my work is about. Um, my work isn't about deciding or proving or showing that one's better than the other. And there's a couple of reasons for that, that one school's better for, you know, than another school. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, um, there are many different kinds of girls schools as there are co-ed schools. Yeah. Right. So you, if you've spent a lot of time in schools, yeah, you can walk into every school that says it's, it's co-ed, which is actually the default. If it's not co-ed, then it must be special. Um, so, and they're, they're, they're diff different. They have, you know, they can have the same mission, but a different curriculum. They can have the same curriculum, but a different mission. And so they're very different. Um, they feel different when you walk into them. They smell different. Um, they operate very differently. I've never been in a school that's been the same. Of course, I also have actively sought out a lot of different schools to work in. Um, so I would say the same thing about all girls schools. I have worked in all girls schools. I've researched all girls schools. I'm the scholar in residence at an all girls school, public, private, elite. My daughter goes to an all girls school. Um, and, and I've toured and visited and you know, I've seen a lot of them and none of them are the same. So that's why I'm not really in the business of is one better than the other. The other reason that question, um, I don't take that question up, although I appreciate that it's in your mind. A lot of people ask that question. But the other reason the re my research doesn't take it up is that um, my response would be for whom? Mm. So, oh, yeah. Schools yeah. are better and different for different people. So um, that's, that, that's what makes that question just a little bit, a little bit trickier. Yeah, um, that, that makes sense. So well, thank you. Yeah, my, go, go ahead. Are you sure? So I think one of the things I also look at about uh, single sex schools or all girls schools is I'm looking at knowledge. When I look at curriculum, I'm looking specifically at how knowledge, whether it's you know, AP Chem or art history, um, both of which were in my research, um, or junior liter English literature, right? So I'm looking at how 
messages or scripts about gender and sexuality are like circulating and kind of flowing underneath. Like it's mm -hmm. almost like a haunting, right? It's that it's there, it's in the air, it's in the knowledge um, and it's in the pedagogy, like the doing, yeah. right? And that's what's the hardest, that's the hardest thing in my mind to see and understand. It's easy to see about uniforms. It's easy to see about admissions policies. It's easier to see um, in sports, right? Because these are visual, we construct our, our most of our meanings and our understanding around difference visually. So if you can't see it, yeah, then it's really hard to pinpoint. And that's one of the reasons that I also, that question, it's not that it's not a good one. I just don't take it up because I'm really trying to ask a question about knowledge. And that's a very old, I mean, that's a historical tenet of feminism is about, around knowledge and how that knowledge gets taken up by each of us to decide what girl we want to become, what girl we don't want to become, what guy, what, what person we want to become. Right. So yeah, yeah. it's very yeah. subtle. Um, but things like, you know, who gets called on in class and even in an all girls school, different, some girls are going to get called on more often than other girls. What does that mean? Or praise. I spend a lot of time talking about uh, praise and shame. That happens in any school, mm -hmm. um, but it can also be gendered. Um, so I, I think that's, you know, another reason, Steve, why the brain, the neuroscience and neurosexism was important to me and Nancy Lesko is, is largely around this use of this science, which is really important um, and deep and rich, but it's being used in ways to make very flat policies yeah. that are yeah. gendering and regendering in what we see as highly normative ways. That feels dangerous to us. I, I have to share, and this is this is no joke, but this week, um, and I don't know if this is, I don't know actually how I missed this as a woman, um, but you know, we, I, my wife and I, we had a daughter, she's 15 months and we read, we read to her every night. And there's something that happened in the last couple of days of like, I noticed that almost all the books were male characters, even if it's about a little animal. And I don't know if that's kind of, I mean, I don't know if that's even what you're talking about, but it's always like, oh, he was this and he was this and he was, and I just found myself last night, there's this book that's all he, it's all animals. So like, like, why did you pick this? And I'm like, no, I'm changing it all to she. And you know, like, I don't know, that probably has no connection, but it just like, I was like, wait a minute, maybe this is what you're talking about. It's, it's part of it. And that's, you know, I think textbooks or representation is part of it. But that, Jessica, is also a lot easier to see and detect. Sure, you're right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Than the way the book is read, right? Or the how many times the book is read or how the book is discussed, right? So just representation in and of itself, from a curricular standpoint, is a very sort of additive approach. It's also definitely a more second wave feminism approach to, you know, re representing girls as much as boys in books or men as much as women. But yeah. what does that do? That does something, but it's it's limited because it doesn't account for the social relations or relations of dominance that happen in pedagogy. I mean, you could say you could read the books to your to your you said daughter, um, but did you ever let 
Do you let her pick the books? Do you let her change the characters' names? What do you do with it? That in my mind, from a curricular aspect, really matters to me. So I don't really go at textbooks, although they can be really problematic. Um, But it's so it's also beyond curricular materials, but a lot of um, social social relations and and really implicit policies. you know, a lot of implicit policies about sexuality, um, a lot of implicit policies about who should be protected and not, you know, so that's definitely important. And it's, a, I think Jessica, it's important to be very, really aware of as well. Yeah. Can, can you give us an example, like when you say an implicit policy, what would that, what would, what would that look like in public school? Well, I would say one of the most, one of the more common ones that's really been analyzed a lot in the years, um, largely because of Amy Best's book called Prom. Um, You know, prom was you could go to prom. Well, there's always all these rules around prom, right? Who can go with whom? What can be worn? Um, And so she really started understanding like what that was doing to promote a particular understanding of sexuality and who you're supposed to like and who you're what that night's supposed to be like. And so she really has gone deep in analyzing the messages of a policy like prom. Um, I'll give another policy um, that I'm really interested in about single sex schools is this idea that girls are safer in all girls schools. Well, that assumes, you know, it's one safer from what that mean assumes that boys are predators. you know, safer than what it means that that girls and young women are not predators, um, and and neither of those are the case. Um, you know, people people can be violent yeah. and predatory. So you know, that's a policy or that's like, oh, we're single sex because girls are safer. That's right. like a really impl- right and implicit thing. Um, there's assumptions around sexuality with that too, right? Like I know the casual ways in which conversations come around not being distracted by boys as if all girls are attracted sexually or romantically attracted to boys. And I'm like, there's a hell of a lot of masculinity in here. And so it's also like interrupting some of those ways in which um, gender and intersectionality intersect in that implicit policy of come to an all girl school, your girl will be safe. Your girl will be not distracted, things like that. Yeah. I remember talking to you about that a while ago. I'm like, what about all the gay kids? Right. (laughs) Like, like, anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's, I will say to Caitlin's example and the other examples I gave it, when I look at all girl schools or look at ones that I really, I really would say I like for like for for my own children um it it's somewhat frustrating because these the 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 goals and often the sort of common and collective mission of all girls is to promote girls and women um in the world and in their becomings of themselves um but then a lot of the strategies around curriculum and policy are still doing, are still like undoing what they're trying to do, right? Mm. Like this, I, some of these discourses of protection or, or focus or heteronormativity. Um, so it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of a, 
it can be a trap that a lot of, um, I think, single sex schools for girls are, are maybe not aware of. Or, um, and it's not that there's not ever going to be a double bind. I mean, there's a double bind in lots of ways, right? But being aware of the double bind, at least you give a better chance of being able to work, work through the naughtiness of it than to ignore it. Yeah, absolutely. Jamie, go ahead. Caitlin, I was thinking we're talking a lot about gender specific schools and I'm thinking for um, people that may be non-binary or when we're talking gender spectrum, where do they fall in this conversation? Uh, it's a great question. I think um, it's, I mean, I, I, it's so interesting as a educator and person who's experienced and taught my whole career in education has been in all girls schools. And they're interestingly, the schools where we find the opportunity for discussing gender in more complicated ways, like possible. So that's one thing I think is really powerful about the spaces in which I've worked in is um, like non-binary students or agender students um, have have become a part of like the conversation of the like sort of complicatedness of an all girl school. Like recently with a client, we realized um, like the term girl and woman sort of kind of like disappeared in some of the discussions of what they do um, because of the um, kind of understanding like, well, we don't have just girls at our school. So then, and we're, we're like, sure, there's, there's students who identify differently and um, identify across the spectrum of gender and you're an all-girl school and like you're called this like girl in the title and so it like would complicate it so I think it's really to me I find it like youth are interruptive and they are interrupting sort of those assumptions within all-girl schools because of their like becomingness, like their ability to be like, no, but like, I don't identify as that. So then I think adults get tripped up. Like, so then what do we call ourselves? Like, what are we doing? Like, as if it has to be this or that when um, youth are creative and they're interruptive in how they sort of um, poke against the knowledge or assumptions about gender within all girl spaces, which um, to me is like really kick ass. And I was able to be a um, a witness to how young people would push against those assumptions. Um, not to say that they're not in um, schools that are not like naming to be um, gender specific or all girls schools, but I definitely um, have seen that in my experience in all girl spaces, for sure. That was a really good question, Jamie. I gotta ask about your experience in sharing your lens with all boys schools or have you have you had that experience and and how is it different I, I i'm just curious i have had the experience in um the like what they would call like the um brother school of an organization that i was working at and um i would say the knowledge that it was informing the reasons and the purpose behind that school um, and the schools themselves foreclosed on a lot of the opportunities to complicate gender and sexuality and instead, unfortunately, amplified 
toxic masculinity mm-hmm. and reified a binary between women and girls. There was no inner relationship connection or understanding of the purpose and the desires behind um, an all-girl school and an all-boy school, um, besides what often people will call in these spaces a gender-positive focus. Unfortunately, I think it collapsed on itself because there wasn't any real purpose or critical theoretical understanding or framework of gender. And so when I was, um, to be totally real and honest, I would, as an educator, be in that space. And I experienced the classic toxic masculinity moments of like being sexually harassed at the school as a woman teacher. Um, hearing the like very normative, heteronormative and um, hyper-masculine discourse within the space. So it was really potent how, what can become of um, really unintentional, uncritical um, spaces that are so gendered and not critically thought about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. Um, Caitlin, you just you said I wrote this down. You said youth are interruptive. I like I like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep that. Um, but it it reminds me, you know, and I should we should also say congratulations that y'all are re- recent recipients of the Enduring Ideas Grant, which is a big one through Teach for America. So congratulations on on winning that. Um, but it's it's youth focused, right? So I'm wondering if you can actually. Tell us what is the focus of engaging youth? And I believe it's in sex ed. I don't remember kind of what we talked about, but I'd love to hear that because I think it, it connects that. So um, Caitlin, yeah, let, let, fill us in on that. Sure. So um, Stephanie and I wrote a grant to um, do a youth, for youth, by youth, um, co- like pleasure-centered, sex-positive sex ed curriculum. So I just said a lot of things right there. I said, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd, say, I'd say so. I, yeah, this is where you're gonna have to be like, <laughs> like you're gonna have to like, this is like, I would say like the big passion project for me as a sexuality educator and doing this work with Stephanie to focus in on sex education is like my dream project. So um, I said for youth, by youth. So what that means is, um, Um, Leveraging, again, the power that I think Stephanie and I have around um, meeting the gap between theory and practice is like working with Stephanie and possibly other colleagues and um, um, researchers and scholars around doing a youth participatory action research project, which means youth would be involved in, they would write the curriculum. So they would be involved in the, the design part of our process where we're not what we do is we try to take ourselves out of it and the assumptions and questions we ask around pleasure or around sex or around sex education and um, really intentionally and thoughtfully design um, YPAR is what it's called so that it actually is for youth by youth. So we're not just saying like, oh, what is pleasure? What do you need? What do you want? Because there's a lot of assumptions in those questions and asking youth and youth have assumptions about what we want to hear. And so we're being really intentional with this project to design it as a youth action research so that um, 
we're also interrupting ourselves as adults in what we assume to be a need for kids in sex ed. So as a sex positive person, as a pleasure focused sex educator, like I still even have a lot of assumptions. So we want to like take ourselves out of that and um, create the conditions for youth to design it and write it themselves with our support, um, which is so cool. So that's what we're going to do with that grant. Yeah. Sounds awesome. That's what seems sustainable to me. Like that will work. How so, Steve, can you say yeah. more why, why you think that? Well, I, I always think we have to go young. Empowering the young people, um, to me, has has the potential to grow this work faster than any other way. Just, just I'm just listening. I, I, I don't know. Um, but the way you, and I've seen it happen in some of our work too, when the young people get empowered and get empowered even helping to create curriculum, that, that to me is a huge step in, in getting from what, what I read in that dance between theory and practice that you guys talked about in your article, which is always the hardest thing, right? Trying to do that dance. And that to me seems like that was the answer I was looking for. <laughs> it just made sense. So Steve, in your, in your 33 years of experience, have you, and I don't know a content area you taught, but have you ever- Same as you. <laughs> English, have yeah. you ever had a curriculum that the students, where they, they chose the knowledge, conceptualized the knowledge, and then organized the knowledge for consumption? No, I, I would say no, not not to that not to that degree that you just described. Um, I was just making sure we weren't losing our minds because that's we don't we have no, any either. We no, have any a lot more experience than us. So yeah. I, you know, I'm see, I'm seeing it happen a little bit in our in our current work with the the neurosequential model, but we're seeing it happen in schools where kids are are understanding that lens similar to the lens. You guys are teaching a lens to me. You're, it's a really an important way of seeing. Um, and when the kids got a hold of it, I just saw it become amplified so much more powerful um, yeah. and, and kind of spreading very organically throughout the school without a lot of, of extra <laughs> push and shove, it was just, it was, it, it, it's really turned into a great, but the students being, you know, being that involved has made a huge difference. And I, I it made me only wish I could go back to the classroom and, yeah. and do it again. Yeah. Um, and so I don't actually know who, this is more for you, Caitlin or Dr. McCall, but you know, when you're speaking about this dream with this new grant that you have, which sounds amazing. What's the overlap between that and then kind of going back to, right, this, this overarching theme of feminist education, right? What's the intersection of, of those two? Um, I don't know if Dr. McCall, you wanna tackle that or? Um, I, I think for us, the feminist aspect of that is one to we're privileging a, you know, a, a, a lens around, um, a critical lens. So that means we are including and would like to help you think more about the social political context of 
sex, sexuality, and pleasure? How did we, you know, how did we come to know what those things mean? Who told us? And how did, how did we take that up? So I think that's an aspect of feminist education is really including the having an eye and a, towards the sociopolitical context and history. Um, language isn't neutral and um, we pay a lot of attention to that. And I, I think an, another sort of feminist approach to using this grant, designing this curriculum with youth um, is just trying to disrupt the power structure of around knowledge. Um, feminists, all kinds of feminists are almost always concerned with power and knowledge and how they operate together. So as Caitlin said, from a feminist approach, we would really like to um, try to reposition ourselves as facilitators and position the youth to take up the leadership on the knowledge construction and the knowledge design. Um, each of those processes, like from, you know, from uh, creation and organization and sequencing and selection and evaluation, each one of those processes is a social relation. Mm -hmm. And we would like, if we want to say that we want pleasure, you know, centered curriculum, really any curriculum that's for you, by you, we got to figure out a way to, to re reposition our, our historical dominance as teachers, as adults, you know, so I think that's a feminist approach um, is really, you know, an analyzing how the knowledge is constructed, mm -hmm. you know, and who, and who got to construct it and whose knowledge it is. Um, I think, I think both of those, I think from a critical feminist or intersectional um, lens, we, we are not the designers to be trying to represent, you know, we, the two of us doing it, we don't believe can make it the most inclusive right. curriculum, right? We we have our own subjectivities and our own lo social locations and our definitely we have a range of experiences. Um, but we would we would really we just want we want to see what they can do with it. We think they can do it better than us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've actually never thought of that before. That we 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 can't make it inclusive if it's just us, right? You need to include the kids in that process to truly make it inclusive. Yeah, and I think we, our approach is as a curriculum, as curriculum designers and, you know, theorists of gender and sexuality and, and youth, we, we have the decision to either, to, to say we have all those experiences, so let's do it. Or we have the decision to say, we have all those experiences, how do we create the conditions for youth to do it. Yeah, I like that. Caitlin, anything that you wanted to add to that? I know that's awesome. Yeah, I couldn't have described that more beautifully. Stephanie. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. Um, okay, so maybe I'll, yeah, go ahead, no, yeah, keep going. There's no possible way, I think for myself, um, I, I think that leveraging the experiences from scholars and researchers is huge. Um, and I think that's something I just, I feel really lucky to have the opportunity to work at that dance of theory and practice. Cause I know as a teacher, like in theoretically, I was like, yes, I want it to be for youth by youth, but um, 
you know, I think that falls flat in, in what I originally would have thought that would be um, without more critical, like pushback and feedback from youth themselves, but also scholars and researchers in ways in which people do things, do this differently. So yeah, I'm really excited about it for sure. So, so speaking of pushback, I imagine what the work that you do, there's pushback. Um, and maybe that's just like, maybe there's not, but are you experiencing pushback in systems or not as much because people are hiring you and so they really want to do this work? Um, I don't know if that exists for you all right now. Hmm. I think we're not, I, people are hiring us, so which is great. Um, yeah. And I, I do think that we've gotten some pushback just in terms of the creation. I don't know if it's more pushback or just questions around, yeah, are you sure right. you want to say it's a feminist? Are you sure you want to do that? And why do you want to do that? And, you know, there are a lot of education consulting companies and firms. There are huge ones um, and there are small ones and a lot of people do it. And I think that um, we just, we felt that we could all have similar missions to build capacity and to work for equity and um, um, you know work towards more more student achievement. Who doesn't want that, right? But we are just really wanted to articulate a specific lens at doing that work. So I think the we've just had a lot of more questions around what, what why feminist and are you sure you want to do that? I think those have been the two <laughs> the two most yeah. common questions for us. Yeah, yeah, which has been helpful. Yeah. Yeah, we spent a lot of time just, just debating that. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, as we begin to wrap up, um, you know, our listeners r run the gamut for kind of the work that they do in education. And so I want to spend this last time or this last few um, moment here of speaking to just a teacher, let's just say a kind of a math teacher in a high school. Um, why does this matter? What would you say to them um, if you had to kind of... Or, or where to start. Or where to start. Yeah, well, good job, Grainer. There'd be a lot of teachers like myself and 10 years ago who would say, where to start? Yeah. Um, give me a simple step forward. Yeah, awesome. So I, I, I'd I mean, like to hear from... that many. Don't get yeah. me wrong. I mean, it's not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be stupid, but the, it does dial down to a practical first or second step sometimes yeah and i'd love to hear from both of you we'd like to hear from both yeah. of you so caitlin if you want to start sure i think my what just like initially came up for me on the next step would be um so you said like what to tell a teacher right yeah someone that's doing this work that, that hasn't even conceptualized a feminist education like yeah what would we yeah go ahead I think to me, the most feminist thing anybody can do, and again, feminism's for everybody. So like there's assumptions about like, oh, but I'm not a woman or I'm not this. Well, no, it's for everyone. Um, um, I would ask them to just consider what has been their, their, their experience, their gender story, their identity story, their like how they have conceptualized and reflected on who they are in all of the differences in um, privileges and power and assumptions that they hold um, sit there for a while. And um, I know that that has been incredibly helpful for me 
as a white woman, as a white cis woman, um, I think in, in other intersections of my identity that I hold privilege, um, sitting in that and understanding who I am in the classroom and what, like really spending time with that matters for how I interact with students, what students, how, um, what I choose to talk about, what I choose to not, whether I know that or not. I think sitting in reflection around um, our positionalities and identities across lines of difference um, matter a lot for how we teach and what we teach. Um, so that's my first invitation and maybe a tiny first step is you can focus in on without sort of flattening the differences, but like focus in on how you've come to be in your gender, how you've come to be in your whiteness or your racial identity or your space, um, how you've come to be a teacher, what what assumptions do you have there? Um, on the, and really that reflection around identities, I think is really important. Yeah. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Do Dr. McCall, what about for you? Um, I have, I've done quite a bit of PD trying to, um, with people who've been asked me to help their teachers think about this. I'll tell you what doesn't work is saying, starting with, so how is every single thing you do in your life gendered, <laughs> right? So that doesn't really work because it's too overwhelming. It's too big of a question. And it's very hard to just see right now, like how everything is gendered, right? Um, so I think for everyday practices, um, I like to really start with what people know about school and what school does. What does school do, right? And think about specifics around school and the ways that, that we all have learned who we are in those ways of school, right? So we may start with how were we lined up? As kids, how were you lined up? Boys and girls. Girls, girls and boys, yeah. right? Okay, so that's a binary gender construction. How were your sports teams divided when you were growing up? Mm -hmm. Some some kids play on co-ed sports teams uh, in their like outside of school teams. Some kids don't. Some kids in school don't, you know, or play, they do or they don't, right? So um, your sports team. So we, you know, I try to start with like, so let's talk about your school. What do you do? What are some things you do? Well, we read, we write, we teach. And so, um, you know, I would start with that and then help people see how those everyday practices like work to sort and sift and label. And then we've got to do that, I think, analysis that Caitlin's talking about. Like, so then what does that mean for me and who I am? Do I take that up or do I reject it? If I decide to take it up, if I get in the girl line and I'm going to stay in that line all through elementary school, what happens when I don't want to be in that line anymore? Right. So really thinking, what are the practices then that are going to make me not want to be in that line difficult or challenging or rewarding? So I, I would start there with teachers, but I think the one other place that I would really like to, I like to start with the teachers is helping them unpack why they do what they do, you know, mm -hmm. and 
And it's yeah. hard to say for a lot of teachers, like, oh, I'm a feminist teacher. Or right, or people will say, Steve, this may sound familiar. Oh, I'm a progressive teacher, or I'm a constructivist teacher. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, uh, those are philosophical or cognitive beliefs about teaching. I'm also a constructivist teacher. I'm very good at scaffolding knowledge with my students and co-constructing it. Right, but that still that still involves feminism or not feminist approaches, right? So helping teachers be able to say, what what do you know about why you practice what you do? And then trying to help them figure out what they may not know about why they do what they do. So I think, you know, there's there's many steps and believe me, this is not just like one one professional development um, right. session. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's a great question. Check the box. Yeah. yeah. It, it, people do that. I mean, people do like gender training, right? Gender sensitivity sure. training. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, and I think we're saying, in, even in our, our, our name, Rescripted, we're saying, yeah, we might need to go a little bit deeper than that. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you're leaving us with a lot. I, I cannot thank you enough for your time um, enlightening us. Um, I have a lot of notes written down, which is always a good thing. Um, thank you. I, did, I just personally want to thank you for creating Rescripted. I'm, a, I'm excited to see the great work that you're doing. And I already know that you've done great work with schools. And so, um, yeah, it, it, it meant a lot to have you both with us and sharing with us. And I want to say, I guess, just keep kicking ass. <laughs> <laughs> for happiness it's yeah. really nice to meet everybody and just to like like i said it's really nice to be asked about your work so i appreciate yeah. that. you to do is take a deep breath roll your shoulders up back and down nice and big deep breath in through the nose and exhale through the mouth on this one we're gonna bring our hands up and down right hand's gonna go in the air breathe in take your right hand over to your left knee exhale and just give yourself a little twist Breathe in and out. All right, left hand up. And breathe out down to the right knee. And give yourself a twist. Breathe in and out. Waking up the body a little bit. All right, this time breathe in, hands up. And as we breathe, breathe out, we're gonna rumble. Breathe in and rumble slow. Breathe out and rumble fast. Breathe in and rumble slow. Breathe out and rumble fast. Good. All right, roll your shoulders up, back and down. Breathe out and just blink your eyes closed for a minute. going to take a few moments for ourselves just a little bit of our time just let our breath settle 
in through the nose, out through the nose, nice and easy. Relax the shoulders, relax the jaw. Relax the brow. Take a moment to just notice how your feet feel on the ground, feet flat on the floor. We can always bring our attention down to our feet, down to our, the roots of our personal tree. Bring our attention to our seat, the weight of our body. Just getting a general sense of how we're feeling today. of where our breath is just moving in the body. If you feel like you can't find where that breath is at, just take one hand and rest it on your diaphragm or your belly. Just feel that movement of breath. When we connect our breath and our body, home to the present moment and we know that we can find a little bit of peace and comfort in that present moment right here right now <laughs> 